Welcome to the Data Cafe. I'm Jeremy. And I'm Jason. And today we're talking about forecasting solar radiation storms. Wow, so Jason, I think you're the, the expert here. You're the uh, astrophysicist. Did you tell us all about your interest in uh, solar weather and radiation storms? Yeah, it's an amazing field because what looks relatively static to us, the sun in the sky, is actually this crazy ball of churning plasma and magnetic field that goes through these cycles of um, spewing out plasma into the interplanetary space. It has an effect on everything that it interferes with. So that plasma eventually gets to us here at Earth and it's radiation, right? It's got um, protons, electrons, they have certain energies to them and they impact on Earth. And we're protected in our bubble here in the magnetosphere. So the bubble that's generated from our magnetic field around the planet. Right. You know, this magnetic field that if you hold a compass out, it aligns to that. Uh-huh. There's a, a strength there to it and the charged particles will bounce off it or attach to it and trickle down into the poles generally where it comes into the um, the earth. Okay. And that creates what we see as the aurora. So that's the first kind of indication that we have on our planet that there is an effect of the sun. And it's a spectacular display, right? These um, charged particles hit the upper atmosphere and they've gotten down low enough at the polar regions that they create this spectacular display. Um, And in times of high solar activity, we see more effects of the aurora. It is spectacular. It's absolutely beautiful sight if you've uh, ever been lucky enough to to see it. But I mean, this is part of a sort of a larger phenomena, isn't it? As I understand it. So... This is a manifestation of, of solar weather in general. And you know, before we had a look at this topic, I, I didn't really even appreciate that uh, uh, the sun generated weather. So you know, how's, how's that happening? What, what's, what, what's, what's really sort of creating that? Yeah, right. The sun itself, like I was saying about how it seems kind of static, when you, when you go into the detail of it, it's this massive nuclear reactor got this nuclear fusion process happening in the core it's generating all this energy and because it's this kind of it's a fluid in the sense that as it rotates it rotates in this differential manner so interestingly the um, lower regions of latitude on the sun rotate faster than the polar regions and as the electrical process um, from all of the energetics going on kind of churns up the magnetic field that the sun the solar dynamo generates Mm -hmm. that magnetic field gets wound up and it's kind of like an elastic band that's getting twisted and twisted and eventually the energy buildup may snap and on the sun that snap is seen as this eruption of magnetic field that takes with it some of the plasma and the ejection of the field has such a a release of energy that it's this really bright phenomenon known as a solar flare. I see. And that solar flare can have a counterpart to it as well, which is a coronal mass ejection. So that's all the mass that then erupts off the sun. It manages to actually break away. It's so energetic and it plows through the interplanetary space mm-hmm. and goes out and spreads out. It sweeps up the material ahead of it in the solar wind 
So that's the constant stream from the pressure of the sun. And as it sweeps it up, it means we're getting this kind of wave of energetic particles hitting the magnetosphere and maybe triggering a reaction where it gets down closer to the Earth's surface, creates those aurora that we see, but also creates a kind of more um, a higher radiation dose in the upper atmosphere of Earth. Right. So you talked about the solar wind. So that's the sort of weather that's always present and always happening, this sort of constant stream of charged particles that's, um, that's yeah. permeating all of that space between um, the sun and all of the planets, I guess. But the, it's the coronal mass ejections, it's this sort of explosions, these flare activities that create something a bit more interesting and possibly damaging or, or, uh, or dangerous, um, it, it, depending on the, the context, in terms of th- these radiation storms, I understand. Yes, exactly. They are the storm. They are the tornado, the acute phenomenon that is happening in the general weather system. So exactly like you say, the solar wind is happening all the time. The sun, just from the energy that it has, has this constant outflow of material. But these storms happen. They happen, CME can happen anything between once a week to maybe five times a day. Um, the sun itself goes through a cycle, an 11-year solar cycle. So when I talked about the magnetic field, it flips every 11 years. Oh, right. And as a result of that, you're seeing the um, magnetic energy create sunspots, these regions of magnetic field that are coming through the surface of the sun. More of them appear. The act- they get more complex. The magnetic field's getting wound up. And over those 11 years, you go through a solar minimum to a solar maximum. And in the time of maximum, we're more likely to have more of these storms. Right. So this is why we might want to forecast it then, because this could have quite a dramatic impact on some of our modern technology by the sounds of it. The impact on Earth is where if there's enough CMEs of high energy hitting the magnetosphere, Mm. they can induce a ground current. And that ground current is what we refer to on Earth as a geomagnetic storm. And now our dependency on technology means that if something tripped, you know, something something just trips somewhere, say, you could have a power outage, you could have a knock-on effect. We actually have an interview with Dr. Hazel Bain, who tells us about the work that's being undertaken right now to bring all of the academic research. You know, we've got spacecrafts that are observing the sun that were sent up for research purposes. Let's try to understand the phenomenon, the physics that's going on. It's actually a really good test bed for theories of how the sun itself works. And it's a star, right? So how do the stars work? You know, it's a classic example of we're looking up into the night sky, but the sun is a perfect um, kind of place to not experiment because we can't experiment with it directly, but observe and observe up close. And Hazel's work is to take those observations, take all of the physics and the research, and then turn to the customers on Earth, the aviation industries, the satellite industries, the um, people building things that may be affected on Earth, such as the realm of agriculture, where they're reliant on GPS and the signals from GPS, and build a forecast of some sort to tell the customer what it is that they need to be told. Cool. Should we listen to uh, Hazel's interview then? 
So yeah, Dr. Hazel Bain is here from the University of Colorado in Boulder, where she works as a research scientist at the Cooperative Institute for Research in Environmental Science, in collaboration with the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration's Space Weather Prediction Center. Dr. Hazel Bain is joining us today in the Data Cafe. Hi, Hazel. Thanks. Thanks for joining us. Hey, Jason. Thanks for the invite. So, Hazel, you work in space weather and um, the prediction of events in space weather that are of real interest on Earth. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, so uh, space weather, uh, for those that haven't heard of it, is sort of similar to terrestrial weather um, or weather for what most of us are used to calling it, uh, which is our understanding of of the environment. Uh, and in this case, in space and particularly uh, the environment from naturally occurring phenomena that, that start at the sun, that originate at the sun and and how things like solar flares and coronal mass ejections, how, how these things can impact us here on Earth, uh, impact our technology systems, uh, and what we can do to forecast these kind of space weather events and mitigate their effects on our technologies. And so we're talking about satellites being exposed and not having a protection maybe against this. So some of the stuff you alluded to in your talk was the long-term and short-term mitigation of problems that might come up. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, so you're you're definitely right. Uh, satellites and spacecraft are definitely one of those things that are uh, quite susceptible to space weather in some cases. Uh, so uh, assets like that that are up in space in orbit round about Earth, uh, but also things like the electrical grid here on Earth, uh, things like aviation can be impacted. Uh, particularly, again, it comes back to the satellite and the spacecraft industry. Like we get a lot of our uh, GPS um, from spacecraft constellations. We get things like our communication networks uh, through satellites. And so those trickle down effects can affect things like the aviation industry, they can impact anything that uses GPS really. So agriculture even, um, even agriculture has moved to this world where fine grain farming can be done using GPS. And so if a space weather event is occurring, if you've got a geomagnetic storm or something, then if your GPS is off, then it can really impact customers all the way down the line. So one of the things you said there was about short term versus long term forecasting. And, and that's something certainly you see in the satellite industry, like not only do people want to know is something happening right now and what they might want to do in the moment to, to mitigate uh, the effects of space weather to their assets so that they don't lose them, so they don't lose money, so they can make sure that they're up and still working. People want those kind of heads up and warnings, but they also want to think about long term. So, for, exa for example, the satellite industry, we get radiation storms from the sun. And those can really impact the spacecraft uh, ability to, to function. Um, so things like you can get long term degradation of electrical components due to this radiation. Um, and so people want to think about, well, what's happening in the next five to 10 to 20 years? And how can they design these instruments, harden them against these effects and design around the impacts of space weather? So they want to know that when they're in a designing phase and what kind of an environment they might encounter during their mission. And that environment, I'm wondering how much the effects of these are felt. Are the events rare or happening all the time? I think there's a there's a range. Uh, there's certainly a bit like weather. Weather is not just whether it's raining or not raining. We're experiencing weather all the time, and it's the same with the sun. There's we always feel the effect of what we call the solar wind, which is this outflow of plasma from the sun. We're always feeling that. But situations where it actually starts to get severe enough that it would impact us. 
those kind of things can be more rare, um, like the really big geomagnetic storms, they don't happen every single day. Um, radiation storms, really pretty rare from an impact to things like aviation. If, for us, that's quite a challenge because it's good, one, that we're not having to put out warnings every single day, but also a challenge that how do we understand these rarer events? Uh, we don't always have so many of them to look at. Um, so how do we train our models on something that is that is rare, that we uh, that, that is changing from event to event? Uh, how do we get enough data? How do we collect enough data over the years to be able to to increase our understanding from a physics-based side of things and also from a more empirical or machine learning based uh, or even statistical type model how do we gather enough events to train those models to do well and give us accurate forecasts yeah it's the classic question of how do we obtain more data because more data gives us more to train on and eventually test on and make sure that the accuracy improves one of the things that you mentioned was that that problem with the accuracy and the kind of false positives as a result of that imbalance in your data set. Are there currently techniques that you're looking at to deal with that? Yes, yeah, so that's a really interesting point. And I'll, I'll dig a little deeper on the, the false alarm type um, things. This is something that we that can vary for every single customer. Some customers might want to know, it's a bit like the credit card fraud. Would you rather know that there was a potential malicious activity on your credit card? Would you be happy to have some false alarms, but to be to be sure that you're going to catch something if it happens? And so some cases, some of our our, uh, our customers would prefer, you know, something where it's like, is anything going to happen? Should we start paying more attention right now? Whereas there's other people who would really rather you didn't have false alarms. So one of those examples might be uh, we give forecasts to NASA for uh, for their crewed uh, space exploration missions. And so if you have an astronaut out on the surface of the moon and they're out on some mission, you don't perhaps want to call them back to some base to get into shelter and then say, oh, sorry guys, nothing's actually happening. So so for that, it's it's an important part. And how do we train our models to, when we have such rare events and, and few examples of some of the big events, how do, we, how do we train our models to be sensitive to that? And how do we tailor them for different customers to give different answers? That's something that we've been thinking about. And certainly it's, it's a question that comes up when we look at machine learning. Uh, one of the, the topics that I'm working on is radiation storm forecasting. Uh, and then the imbalance there is maybe something like 3% of, of the events are in the positive class, whereas the rest are in the control, uh, the control class. And so yeah. how do we handle that? And do we have ensembles of mo models coming together to give sort of slightly different perspectives on the data and and we bring those forecasts together to give an overall better answer from sort of weaker learners individually. Uh, and so it's an interesting question for sure. And how do we augment our data? Uh, that's the other thing, like you hear a lot of people and they're doing image training, the whole dog versus cat thing. Uh, you can have multiple images of dogs and a dog looking left versus a dog looking right is still a dog that's not something that we have the luxury of changing with the sun. It's a bit like if you were to take, to classify an image of a boat, you have the water beneath the boat. It doesn't make sense to flip an image of a boat upside down because then you're telling the model that it's sensible that the, bot, that the boat mm. happens underneath the water. And so it's kind of similar like that in, in solar physics, like we can't just change the sun a little bit or move the images or flip things around because otherwise you've changed the physics of the universe and and you just you just it's just not as simple to be able to do that, unfortunately. Yeah, you really have that difficulty in how do we resample the data because we can't change it because it can't be physically invalid in that sense. 
I love that idea. The physics of the universe has to change if you flip the image. That's great. And when you look at all of these images and there are these false positives in the forecasting sense, the human uh, like accuracy from the forecasters seems so much higher. So we want to consider it as a tool to help forecasters and then ultimately have a tool that can deal with a lot of data that maybe forecasters wouldn't have the time to go through. So part of that augmentation right now, when you build a tool, is it purely to get the forecasters to have something in addition? Or ideally, would we be in a phase where the forecasters don't need to step in? That's a really that's a really great point. I would love to give a shout out to our forecasters at the Space Weather Prediction Center uh, in Boulder. Like they do a great job, and and I think we're not we're not at the point yet where models are able to where a forecaster can step out and a model an algorithm can do this all on its own. That's certainly not the case. We're a long way from that, and and then you see that in many cases when you go back and look at the validation of the of the the forecasts, the forecaster adds a lot of value. Um, to the end result of what the, the customer is going to see. The, the model at the moment really there is as a tool. I think that there are forecasters being able to look at all these model outputs and the data day in, day out. They're able to sort of intuitively tell where the, the strengths and the weaknesses of a model are. And they can sort of on the fly adjust the forecast from the model into something that would actually go out to the public they'll quite often find that in certain cases they can tell whether the model is maybe over forecasting or under forecasting and and perhaps adjust that bias to give a more accurate forecast product. Cool that's really interesting that's great thanks Hazel for joining us at the Data Cafe today. Thanks Jason. Wow that was fascinating I, I think what came home to me there from Hazel's interview was how much these things could impact our modern sort of way of life and what a huge part of the the global economy could be uh, impacted i mean if you if you take out a gps uh, system or a partially uh, knock out the satellites in that that's a huge part of many industries aviation shipping haulage even that would be uh, affected quite dramatically by that i think the, the second thing that i got from that was we're used to deploying electrical systems, digital systems in an environment and thinking, oh, that's fine. That, that's no moving parts. That's easy. We can basically assume that that's going to work for forever or, or certainly, you know, 50 years or something like that. We don't think and we should be thinking that that when we're putting these systems in space, that's a hostile environment right there. Those systems are going to be degraded potentially by the presence of all of this radiation that's around and that's something that needs to be taken into account by the sounds of it in these satellites and this other infrastructure that we're, we're so dependent on. I'm watching The Expanse right now. I'm just in the final series actually and it is excellent. It's all about the colonization of the belt, um, asteroid belt, um, Mars and Earth and it's amazing to think that kind of space itself looks really serene right and like you say it's actually really hostile and especially because of this invisible force which is this radiation that's all around and you don't have any shielding from that so i'm always amazed at the future prospects of space travel you know we talk about going to mars it's always at the heart of our science fiction and yet 
what we did when we went to the moon, you know, was so bold because it turns out the more we learn about radiation, the more we need to protect ourselves against it. And future missions very much need to have something that goes from the now cast to the forecast and gives a really nice indication well ahead of time that there is something happening that needs to be shielded from, whether it's equipment or people. And, you know, if it's people, you don't want to be putting them in danger in, in the way that systems systems can be repaired, but um, it's really damaging to people if, if you're out there. I thought what came across loud and clear was the distinction which you just alluded to, Jason, between customers, users of this service, of this data, and what they need from a forecast service and how that could be quite radically different depending on who they are and depending on almost what safety critical case they're trying to protect or construct around their systems and how they react to this this solar phenomenon. Yeah, I think the really kind of cutting edge with it is how do we build in kind of systems that process data that can handle um, a large amount of observations but first, how do we get to all those observations? And one of the problems with answering those questions for the customers is not knowing if we have the correct observations in place. So a customer wants to know, can you give me a heads up warning? And the answer is generally yes. You know, we could, but we don't have the necessary data, for example. So it really inspires new missions that move away from the science and get some um, observations that can be used to answer the forecasting questions. And one example of this was when we were talking about observations of the sun that Hazel said we're looking at a coronal mass ejection going off and you're just seeing it from one point of view and we don't know the three-dimensional structure to that. And that's really important. And a new mission was then sent up to look at that. Oh, really? And it was the stereo mission two spacecrafts going ahead and behind an Earth's orbit, and they went in a like consistently increasing separation around the sun and eventually crossed on the opposite side of the sun. And over the course of that journey, they were getting new, completely new and unique observations of these eruptions off the sun. Right. And when you're out at a point where you can see the whole Earth-Sun line, you can track something right from the sun all the way to Earth. So that's giving you an opportunity for this early warning system. But there's the downloads issue, you know, the telemetry. You have a spacecraft that's really far away from Earth. Yeah. So it can only communicate, at, you know, at, at most the speed of light, right? Yeah. <laughs> but the phenomenon that's erupting is accelerating particles to close to the speed of light. You know, that's the way the of radiation course. is traveling. So you've got this trade-off between getting the message back ahead of the actual phenomenon. That, and that sounds like one, one of several challenges then in putting a forecast together. You've got to you've got to beat the phenomenon back to earth. What other things make this really quite a chunky problem in terms of forecasting and data science sort of context? So then let's bring it back to we've got our observations from close to Earth or at Earth, right. and what we're looking at then is the disk, the face of the sun. And Hazel told us about the Parker spiral and how things that are actually connected to effects on Earth are in this kind of Archimedes spiral that 
is intersecting at the limb of the sun because the sun, like I was saying earlier, has this rotation effect to it, but the stream of material coming off it is dragging out that magnetic field. So you actually are magnetically connected, not to the bit of the sun that you can see, but around to the side. So all of the studies that you're conducting on the face of the sun, you get all these parameters and this becomes your feature space, right? You're gonna try and build a model with all the features that you can see. But that structure has evolved as it moves around the sun. And then the effect that you're linking it to, the thing that you want to predict, the radiation effect at Earth, is actually linked to what the phenomenon has evolved into on the limb. Oh, wow. So, so I mean, I'm sort of going back to my sort of school lessons about magnetic fields and um, thinking of those uh, amazing field lines that you could, you could see or trace out with iron filings around a magnet. And what you're saying is that the thing I might be ha- have to be worried about in terms of the cr- coronal explosion, the mass ejection that happened, it's not the thing that's right in front of me. It might have, it might have uh, happened around the side uh, at a, a location I maybe can't see at the moment, but then it's going to flow along these field lines, these magnetic field lines from, from the sun to the earth. And I've got, to, I've got to be aware of that. I've got to be sort of have a what a physical model then and and I've got to take that into account with the feature set that I'm going to use in my forecast is that is that right exactly and all of the phenomenon effects that you see are linked to the parameters that are going off that limb and Hazel talked about um, bringing in more features so they have all of this data on flares and there's a flare complexity and you have this you know probability statistical models that say you know, the accuracy could be high. You could say it's not going to flare this complex region on the sun. And you'd be right, you know, 99% of the time or something. But it's your classic imbalance data set where it's the rare events that we're interested in. And then we bring in the phenomenon like a CME and their additional parameters. But you're trying to link CMEs that we observe and we get the best data about them when we observe them kind of side on rather than face on because they're this transient and almost translucent scattered light effect. So you want to see it as best as possible from the side, but you don't see a flare from the side. You see it best straight on. So it's trying to connect these two things and get features that talk to each other in the right way when you start to build a model. Gosh, that sounds hard. And and, I mean, Mm. so much of this sounds really complicated and really just you have to be so careful about the detail thing that stood out for me just in what you were saying then was that this is such a rare event anyway in the data as I think she was saying like three percent is it of events that are positively classed in the data that they're looking at so you've got that imbalance in the data set and then you've got as I understood it an imbalance in the classification depending on who was wanting to even use this as a result that sounds quite challenging as well Mm -hmm. and then you have your different forecasters with their different levels of experience and their different understandings of the physics behind this, because any model that we build, and we can talk a little bit about it that Hazel alluded to, you know, if you bring in any kind of machine learning model, Mm. you're not building the physics into that model. That model is purely a classifier. And you want to train that based on the information you provide to it. Like Hazel's example, that was really, really telling of the boat on the water. You know, you can't flip that upside down. It doesn't make sense. It's not physically um, possible for mm. the you know the the sky to be underneath and in the in the data sets that we have from the sun 
you know, it's expensive to send up satellites. It's expensive to build observatories. So the data is limited in the way that you can't just augment it in random ways, really, because you may change the physics. And there's a bit of a you know pushback when you build a machine learning model if you're doing that. You want to keep the physics as well understood as possible and motivate the classifier. Do we think then that there might have been an interesting discussion, shall we say, between the physicists who'd been using maybe more traditional physical models of the, these events and and someone wanting to try out, anyway, a machine learning approach in tandem with this? Yeah, and we see this in the literature about machine learning algorithms where it turns out it wasn't actually classifying what you thought it was. But is that okay? You know, mm. for certain customers, I may not care about the physics if you've got a classifier that gives me a heads up that there's something that's going to impact in a way that affects uh, radiation levels to a degree that I am worried about. And I remember the example of um, classifying wolves versus huskies. And it turned <laughs> out a simple black box algorithm was detecting the snow in the images because there was snow in the images of the wolves where there wasn't in the images of the huskies. So it's not fit for purpose in the sense that you're selling it as saying I've separated huskies from wolves. But it is in the fact that it has done that in the data set that you've provided you know, if nothing changes, you know, if you don't suddenly bring in pictures of wolves that don't have snow, you're still going to have a robust algorithm at play in what we're trying to study here. And exactly what you say, that discussion will be difficult sometimes to balance between the academics, what's research driven, and the customer, what's operationally necessary. And it sounds like the forecasters at the Space Weather Prediction Centre have been working out you know, when the model's good and when it's maybe not so good. So they've been applying their own learning algorithm, if, if, by the sounds of it, to this approach. They've been working out when it's flagging something which is to be taken note of and to be integrated into the forecast and when maybe maybe not so much. So they're almost applying an extra level of machine learning over the top of this um, uh, algorithm, which I quite like. <laughs> Yeah, and it's got to be done, right? You need to rely on the subject matter expert, like we've said before, because the interpretation of the algorithm and the classifier needs that expert knowledge as well. So you're really building a tool that assists in the process. Mm. And if we get to the stage where there is a lot of data, then that tool is going to be really good at processing the data to a level that makes it even easier to assist the experts in putting out those warnings and getting from that now cast to the forecast where something might be picked up quicker if we have a computational gain to it and then that's where the focus is for putting out a warning following up on that i mean are false positives then an issue with a forecast like this because i guess if you get it wrong that can have quite a serious uh, impact on your customer yeah um hazel was telling us about the effects for crewed missions in space if they need to shield you're asking astronauts to go into a cramped space for a certain amount of time and it's an interruption to a costly mission. So a false alarm is, you know, really expensive in that sense. And similarly, if you're going to change a path of a flight over the poles because you want to protect people from an increase in a radiation dose, that whole process of changing, you know, flights and maybe doing it at short notice is going to have a cost associated Mm -hmm. to it as well. Um, So the false positives are really um, problematic in that sense. And it comes back to the rare event being the one of interest. 
So Hazel was telling us about some of the algorithms they're looking at and they've been bringing together the data to check, well, what are the false positives? Are they actually an uh, event that we are interested in? And where they are, we can use a boosting method and we can weight that and tell our classifier, we did need you to classify that properly. You've considered it as an outlier, but uh, for the sake of accuracy, you know, that's not what we want to do. It has to be weighted more strongly. The um, ensemble of these weak learners comes together. And she described a method of Adaboost, the adaptive boosting that they use. Oh, yeah. So they have all these decision trees and some of them are weak learners, which means they correlate weakly with the truth set that they have but it's better than random. So you've got something better than random by some margin. That's a good thing. But by bringing all of these weak learners together and weighting those outliers, you can build up a model that is a stronger learner as a result. It strikes me that you've got a scenario where one customer, say NASA, would be going, look, we just want to know if it's going to be a serious problem because it's very expensive if we react to something. So you'd set the threshold may be quite high in your model, or would you maybe even have a completely different model for a customer in that sort of more conservative position? And then you'd have a customer who says, I just want to know everything. I want to know everything. So you set the threshold really low um, and you report lots of possibly false uh, positives. You have a situation where you were reporting to one customer what might be a false positive, and the same event you might not report, and therefore that becomes a true negative. So you've got sort of a, a model which could be nicely tweaked for every every eventuality but you have to have that born in mind when you're putting this this lovely service together so that it's easily transferable from one customer to another i guess right yeah it's such a difficult way to tailor the output and the classifier for the purpose of that customer and exactly what you said and um, some people may be interested in these events some people may not and it's going to be its own cost to build multiple versions of those models and yeah. bring multiple kind of detection systems to bear for each of the customers. And I guess that's where the customer has to decide how um, much value do I have in asking you to do that? Because there's not um, a huge amount of money going into, you know, these kind of scientifically funded pieces of research. You know, this this work is generated from the academic community mostly and then people like Hazel have done their research studies and learned all about the phenomenon but then take that skill set into somewhere like Swipsy and put that into play in a kind of industrial sense. So how can we benefit from this? I mean there's some obvious wins I guess but but what would you say was the sort of the most exciting outcomes from from this this effort? Well, firstly, the thing that we just mentioned is the customer focus, which is really interesting that you're not just building a model that itself is useful or not. Mm. It's useful for some people in some ways and some of the time. So that's a really pressing kind of concern generally in data science that, you know, it, it's something that's not just easily automated for all customers. You still have a customer centric focus. The other aspect to it is the physics that we talked about. So if we have a physical understanding of everything that's going on, wow, it would be so much easier to build a model. But there's so much unknown. We, we've so much to learn still about the sun, about these phenomena. And so this research that's being done and the operations that are happening off the back of it are themselves motivating more investment for new missions. 
two missions have gone up in recent years and they're, they're really exciting. The solar probe um, is heading really close to the uh, sun. Okay. So you've got this massive technological challenge to build this heat shield on the front of it. And it'll be the closest man-made object, you know, to get to the sun. Um, wow. So that'll give us such uh, amazing new insight to the atmosphere, as we refer to it, the corona of the sun itself, where these phenomena are starting off. And another one, Solar Orbiter, is going to go out of what we call the ecliptic plane, the plane of orbit of the planets generally, wow. and go over the poles of the sun and give us a view on it that we've never gotten before. Uh-huh. So there'll be a whole new realm of science coming off the back of that, and that will give us a whole new feature space to explore, you know, for these models that are being built and the insights that come off the back of those and the parameters that go into them to feed what the customers need. So yeah, I'd be surprised if it finds any um, ice caps, but uh, that does sound fascinating. I really look forward to uh, looking out for results from, from those missions. The last thing that occurs to me, which you alluded to anyway, was just this interaction between traditional physical mathematical modelling, where you have a you know, set of really well-founded equations that, that describe a phenomenon, describe a, a dynamic interaction, and uh, the difficulty of then going, right, well, how do I parameterize it with noisy data, with partially observed data, with data that might well be being corrupted by the very phenomenon that I'm trying to measure, in fact, given where they're getting their measurements from? How can I, how can I bring these together in a coherent and meaningful way? I, that's something which has a massive crossover for all of applied maths as well as, as, as physics. I think that's a lovely, lovely story, isn't it? Absolutely. And the points that we get our data from are almost not random, but from a solar observation point of view, they could be random. You know, we've got spacecrafts at different planets and then we take the data from that and think, well, what are you measuring at your planet that's coming off the sun? You know, and let's link that to the dedicated solar missions. Um, So one of them is the Messenger spacecraft at Mercury. We've used that in our research to link the solar wind effects at Mercury. So complementary data is being brought together because we can't just augment the data like we were talking about earlier. But what you can also do is pull together the different modeling efforts because when Hazel was talking about the false alarm ratio, some models may be better at the probability of detection and others may be better at reducing the false alarm ratio. So it doesn't mean that any one model is going to be the true model and that's the one to use. You want to bring your models together. So not just within or add a boost that we talked about that you're looking at ensemble kind of modeling. Mm. All of your models can be used in different complementary fashions. And I think that's another bit of this kind of cutting edge in how we bring together these various algorithms that are used by you know all sorts of data scientists in different ways but given the time and need you can pull together the learnings from each where you may not have been able to pull together more data if if you don't have the the cost you know that it needs well that's fantastic i think when i next look into uh, the night sky and uh, see a aurora i will be thinking of this episode and thinking of all of the uh, extraordinary effort that goes in to try and anticipate that and forecast that uh jason thank you very much what a fantastic uh, discussion yeah cheers jeremy thanks for joining us today at the data cafe you can like and review this on itunes or your preferred podcast provider 
Or if you'd like to get in touch, you can email us, jason at datacafe.uk or jeremy at datacafe.uk or on Twitter at datacafepodcast. We'd love to hear your suggestions for future episodes.